The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Would you like to know how to make better decisions for your business, your people, or yourself? Do you want to recognize when you make errors of judgment that cause the quality of your decisions to drop and when you are moving away from, not closer to, your goal? Welcome to Because There's More with Laura Ellis. For the next hour, Laura and her guests will share experiences and insights that will challenge and stretch your thinking, help you recognize your biases, and ultimately guide you towards more predictable and accurate decisions. You'll walk away from this show feeling better informed, more inspired, and a lot more confident about your next big decision. Now, here's your host, Laura Ellis. Hello, I'm Laura Ellis, and this is Because There's More, the show that takes a closer look at decision-making. Thank you for tuning in. I'm delighted to be here with you for another great show and to host another great guest. I said it many times before, I consider myself extremely lucky to start my week talking to people who love what they do and are exceptional at it. And I addition to that, they're also willing and generous to share their insights in hope they can help you and others in business. I'm also lucky because my own curiosity and passion led me to the study of how we make decisions and how we use the amazing capacity of our brains to create better businesses. And just recently, I read an article where a serial entrepreneur wrote that businesses and not charities will make the world a better place, in particular social enterprises. And of course, it's a statement that needs more elaboration, so it's not misunderstood. But one thing I strongly believe in is that businesses do shape societies. Surprisingly, I'm not sure how this happened, until today we didn't have a technology expert on our show in spite of the fact that technology is everywhere and who knows, I think we didn't because we've been waiting for the right person uh, who is Paul Lewis, the Chief Technology Officer at Hitachi Canada. Welcome to the show, Paul. Good morning and thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I've been, again, uh, it's my day for saying lucky every other five seconds, but I, uh, I have been lucky because I met some wonderful people like yourself in my career, and now it's a delight to have you as a guest on my show and share your, your insights. So what did you think about what I said, that uh, businesses shape the society we live in. Absolutely true. In fact, more and more uh, businesses are helping implement sort of the consumer demands. Consumers are looking to download applications and use them and transact with with other people and other businesses. Well, it's it's sort of the business, the entrepreneurial nature of creating apps that are driving that new innovation. Yeah, and it's absolutely fascinating. I always say that I could have had a business in a in a better time because it is so easy for a small business like myself to operate and act like a large organization it's absolutely fascinating but let me just read more about um uh, about your background so people know uh, more about you before we get into more discussion that i can't wait to have as I said, you are the CTO of Hitachi Canada, and in that role, you're responsible for the country's technology. Um, you're responsible also for architecture, advisory, and economic practices. You also lead technology advocacy at the Hitachi Vision and Strategy. You head 
field enablement of analytics for the Americas, evangelize complex technology trends, including cloud, mobility, and analytics across the America, Americas, I should say, and represent Americas in the Global Technology Office, the Hitachi LTD and R&D divisions. In your role of trusted advisor to the CIO community, your explicit goal is to ensure clients' problems are solved and opportunities realized. And prior to joining uh, Hitachi, and that's when you and I met, uh, but also for the past 20 years as a client, you have focused on technology, R&D, and IT business strategic plans and governance, security and risk management, software and infrastructure. There's just the words, every single one, they're so, they imply so much and they're so deep in their meaning and impact on businesses. You're a frequent speaker at technology and industry events, as well as various higher education institutions across the country on topics from IT leadership to big data, internet of things. You also serve as a member of the IT Media Group's advisory board, providing guidance on compelling issues and topics for CIOs and the vendors uh, to serve them, ensuring that the company remain relevant and valuable to both communities. You have an amazing blog that uh, I read. Uh, sometimes I, um, uh, I don't understand everything that's happening in technology, but I know I can go to your blog and get a pretty good update. You also are uh, at Paul Lewis HDS and on LinkedIn. And we already posted your social coordinates. So hopefully uh, my listeners can go uh, back and read your blog. So my God, there's so much there. When do you have time for it, Paul? Well, that's all just Monday morning. The rest of the week, <laughs> I'm mostly just watching TV. Right? That's a, <laughs> I, it, it reads far more impressive than what it might actually be. But, uh, but I do spend a good Good portion of my time, you know, working with individual technology executives and and internally sort of evangelizing the technology as we know it. And I know you must uh, love what you do because a lot of what I've just read focuses so much on uh, on thought leadership. And I know you are a thinker. Um, so tell me, what do you love about what you do today? I, th- I think love is a significant understatement. It's 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 a massive passion of me of mine to sort of come to work every day. Uh, uh, I love um, having conversations with technology executives about their strategy or how the world is impacting their strategy. I love having conversations with multiple industries and multiple participants to look at how one vertical's innovation might affect another vertical's expertise. Um, I love spending a good portion of my time sort of reading and understanding and creating a point of view. There's a lot of opinions on the world, but there's not a lot of point of views, right? That's a that's a well-read perspective that's that might be different or or aligned with with a sort of the general technology opinion. That's an interesting point there, and uh, I, I know that I've had several conversations in the past. So share with us, what would you say is the difference between point of view and opinion? Well, opinion is, you know, reading something and having and taking a say, right, taking a side on, on that particular perspective. A point of view is reading hundreds of articles, um, having conversations with hundreds of people, forming an informed and well-read perspective, and then um, applying what you believe your experience to be to uh, its implementation, and then talking about that, writing about it, uh, speaking about it, um, evangelizing it—it's—it's it's more of a—it's more of a holistic perspective versus uh, just a yes or no answer, whether you agree with a, a subject. And and I strongly believe it takes a a, a big element of courage. I mean, uh, that distinction between opinion and point of view is something I used to come a, a lot across in uh, in my former job when I worked with leaders because it takes a lot of courage to state a point of view. Um, it may get you in the right direction or not, but at least you have the courage to share it. So thank you for um, describing the difference to us. 
Tell us more about the business that you're in today. I I grew up in Eastern Europe, so Hitachi was a very, very big name. Um, I don't know if um, it comes up that much today, and I know that it's still a very good player. So tell us more. So Hitachi Limited is a very large organization, a very large global organization. Uh, it is $120 billion in Canadian dollars, 325, 330,000 people globally. And we exist for the most part to build big machines. You know, we, uh, we build uh, high-speed trains, uh, nuclear power plants, hospitals, radiology equipment, uh, mining equipment, um, as small as the sensors on uh, in cars or RFID chips. We help in many ways uh, uh, foundationally evolve uh, the value of of the earth as a whole. We, we implement what we refer to as social innovation. That's making the world better. It's either making people smarter or healthier or more intelligent or, uh, or faster. We're, we're looking to improve the world by you know, greening the earth and, and, and making people healthier over time. Yeah, and it's amazing because you and I, Paul, had this discussion about a couple of years ago. It's almost like the the old school is deliberately al- allowing the newcomers on the block to take all the spotlight. You know, I mean, y- there there aren't many people who uh, wouldn't recognize Google, but not that I've run the survey, but the everyday person may not know Hitachi. And you, I remember you telling me that Hitachi made a uh, deliberate uh, choice not to stay in the spotlight and, and kind of just do all this amazing work, kind of more behind the scenes. What do you think that is, or did I understand correctly? I don't want to misrepresent I think it's a very fair statement. I think as a culture, Hitachi is humble. I think we exist for the purpose of making the world better, but not to talk about how good we are. Right? We want to make sure that we're enabling municipalities and provinces and countries and, and corporations to drive value for themselves, not for the sake of of look, making us look good. And I know from how I know you that that uh, resonates a lot with uh, who you are as an individual. So we'll probably uh, for sure talk about more and your how did you end up in this industry. But just to start us, uh, how did you end up in IT in the first place? IT has been a passion since grade school. So it's always been how do I open up this box, how to create my little programs, how do I open up my VIC-20 and, and write a little game. And over time, it started to be more interesting and more appealing. It was always the software side that was interesting to me. And through my career, I started to be in the software development side. And while that was interesting, I wanted to know how to actually create a feature. So I went to the product management side and said, okay, well, here's how you interface with the business. And then that was interesting, but I wanted to, to get into the hardware architectural side. So then I looked at the architecture part of it. And then I started just growing my career through the various technology disciplines um, until sort of becoming the chief. Yeah, that's amazing. And personally, when you do the work, what, what do you have in mind? Like what goes through your mind and what excites you the most about what you do? What excites me most is about sort of creating a positive experience for the clients and, and helping them either understand or get better. So I'll talk to clients or I'll talk to sort of internal divisions and staff and say, what's, what is it going to take to move the needle? How do we need to move from where you are to where you want to be? Not where I think you need to be, but where you believe you need to be based on sort of external factors and how, how that business operates. And then what, what information can I provide? What point of view would be valuable to you? What documentation would allow you to, to go through the politics needed to, to, to implement that particular choice? Yeah. And maybe we'll go in more examples uh, after the break. But what happens or how do you uh, deal with situations where what the client wants is not necessarily the best thing for the client? So there's that balance between giving the client what they want uh, and what they need. There certainly is a balance, but there's also a challenge aspect. You know, I've, I've done a few roundtables, uh, sort of executive roundtables over the last several months. And a good portion of the 
let's say the CIOs in the room were focused on sort of command and control. Let let me ensure that nobody can do the work but me, and I have the appropriate uh, regulation, security, and governance requirement. And then the other half saying, you know what, uh, there's value to me in expanding my network. There's value to me in being innovative. There's value to the organization and participating with the business conversation. And part of my role in many ways is to say, uh, is to challenge and to say, I wonder if you try this other way, whether it'd be more effective for your team, or challenge them to say, other organizations of your size or your competition um, or other organizations in other verticals are are gaining insight and gaining innovation and creating new business value by thinking differently, by looking at a different org chart, by using different technology principles, by using different technology foundations. And you know what? Um, uh, many things uh, or everything about what you say is interesting to me, Paul, but what uh, connects to me in what you said is that, you know, I'm uh, fascinated and, and passionate about decision-making. One of the biggest challenges in decision-making or what's causing us to uh, make bad decisions and uh, it's not solving the right problem and it's very interesting when I observe uh, how people make decisions especially people in the C-suite it's it's a lot of a lot of the time they're focusing on the wrong thing and I don't want to say all the time of course they're doing a great job but it's so easy to kind of be one step beside the problem that you're trying to solve. So I heard the same thing in what you're saying. You're actually um, helping them get to solving the right problem by uh, suggesting to them that maybe there should be something else you need to solve. Just as a, a high-level description, what would you say that the biggest challenges of CIOs today are? Definitely personal bias is, is a huge challenge. And it's not necessarily technology bias, but ex, it's experience bias. So I've been doing the, the job for 30 years. I've practiced it this way. I've implemented these kind of policies. I've run technology and evolved technology in this way. I can't possibly learn from an external world. Or they're biased to the vertical, where um, if I'm in the finance world, then I have to do everything that other finance organizations do, and the mining world doesn't apply to me. So th- those are two big biases that really negatively affect whether whether they can do some interesting innovation. And of course, uh, it's no surprise to me how you think, because I remember when you and I talked about me setting up the organization and talking about uh, the importance and breaking down of the decision making. Those are the things we talked about, right? How important it is to get people to see uh, differently than how they do it every other day. And I can't wait to get more examples for you. And Paul, we've already started a very interesting conversation about technology and what is it that you do in your role today. So I want to uh, develop on that. So tell us more about your role and the some of the everyday things that you do. I know you travel a lot. You write a blog. So I'll let you describe it. Sure. So uh, everyday thing, I do travel a lot, that's fair. But I represent in many ways the technology aspects of Hitachi Limited. So in as much as there's 950-odd brands within the global Hitachi, uh, I represent the technology aspects of that, which is give or take about 10%, relatively big chunk comparatively. Uh, so if you were to look at, let's say, GE and you're at Adele, then that would be equivalent of, of the Hitachi as a whole. So as I represent the technology side, um, most of my time is spent on leading the technology team across Canada uh, in terms of creating you know, innovative value for our clients directly. Um, and then I spend a good portion of my time meeting with and speaking with clients, talking about IT strategy, whether it's their strategy or incorporating external technology trends into that strategy and helping them evolve and guide, guide their thinking over time. And, th- and that makes me, that I need to be present for that, right? So I need to be with the clients in their offices, whiteboarding, having the conversation, or meeting with groups of clients, whether it's roundtables or events where I'm talking about sort of higher order things like digital transformation or social innovation, sort of the bigger concepts that, that might have a, a larger impact to their strategy. You talked about digital transformation. It is really the topic of today's show. Um, 
What do you find? Are there like commonalities in the challenges that uh, people you talk to your clients have? And what are those? Digital transformation is a is a significant uh, a challenge across most organizations. The reality is there is a lot of movement in consumerization. So there's an expectations for consumers to work with each other as they do with businesses themselves, small entrepreneurial businesses or large hundred year organizations. So there's an expectation that how I interface with you via mobile or a tablet is the same way I'm going to interface with everybody else. So this consumerization is driving um, automation changes from from task workers to information workers, they're creating these new, what we refer to as digital disruptors. So these are the uh, uh, the Ubers of the world or the Airbnbs in the world that are changing sort of the way you would get a car or the way you would rent a hotel room or even just different payment changes. It's not writing checks and using cash anymore. It's using Bitcoin. It's using Apple Pay. These new digital disruptors are changing the way you know large corporations need to see the world. And it's not about acquiring companies anymore. It's about saying, how do I, you know, how do I create three big new business evolutions? How do I look at my operations and processes differently? How do I create a significant more um, automation to so to, uh, if I'm looking at toy design, to create a design and put it on the shelf in four weeks instead of three months. The second one is customer experience. How to create a very different level of customer experience. Instead of being transactional, how do I uh, holistically in- involve the customer in, in my world? So if I look at an airport, when instead of just having an app that tells me where the stores are, let me create an experience where they pull up to the curb, I recognize who they are, I recognize that they're loyal to these particular retail chains or loyal to these particular airlines. Let me tell them what best security line to go into because I know their priority list. Uh, let me pre-order their latte and muffin. Let me have it ready to them as they walk up. Let me tell them when to go to the gate instead of having them go to the gate. You know, let's create a holistic customer experience. And then finally is creating new business models. I can't acquire companies anymore, right? I've, I've hit the shelf where there's, 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 I'm running out of people to, to, to grab. So let me create, uh, let me find a way to create new revenue within uh, the operations that I have. Let me look at new business models and new ways to, to uh, monetize the information I have or the products I already have to support those clients. Fascinating, Paul. Absolutely fascinating. I'm just visualizing everything you're describing and thinking, wow, what a world we live in. Going back to what I said before the break, you know, my fascination with decision making and, and the fact that I, uh, I often find that people may be solving the wrong problem and they throw themselves all the way in because I'm talking about smart people, very motivated. Um, what's your perspective on that? Do you find that perhaps sometimes the the clients and you know people you talk to at that level um, they focus on the wrong problem or not? What's your experience? I think you focus on the problem you have most experience in. So if I look at a CAO specifically, if they're coming from a project management background, they're going to focus on red, green, yellow, right? They're going to focus on SLAs. They're going to focus on driving value to the business in terms of keeping the technology up. Uh, But if you're coming from a business perspective, you're much more focused on creating revenue, you know, creating new value for the organization, whether that's margin or, or new top line revenue. So coming from your background will have a much different determination on how you're going to operate technology as a whole. And what do you think? Do you think that is helpful for the business or is it always helpful to solve the problem from the perspective that you know and familiar with or is there a different, better way? I think there's value in having different perspectives around the table. But I can tell you from a CIO, it's always been the order taker in many ways, right? They haven't had a seat at that CIO, at that CEO table, because they've been you know, reporting to a COO or, or, or worse, sort of reporting to a CFO, where most of their time is focused on cost savings or cost efficiency. But if you want a seat at that table, that business table, then you better be talking about growth, right? It's not about efficiency. It's about yeah. how are you going to, how are we going to, had had moved the needle on moving this to a $5 billion organization when they're currently $200 million. 
Yeah, and you know, it's uh, it's feeling to me at least like I'm having a deja vu in terms of how the role of the CIO is changing. Ten years back, we're talking about the CFO having to become more strategic and the right hand of the CEO. Not saying that the CFO role is not important, but suddenly it feels like there's an uh, um, overtake by the CIO role to take on more responsibility and more involvement in the strategy of the business. Do you find that to happen? And if you do, are there certain industries where that happens more? Or tell us what you see. Certainly, I see the CEO sort of inspiring to grow, right? So they're focusing on monetizing more or on innovating faster in many ways. They're creating uh, you know, a role called the chief digital officer or the chief data officer. And that, that role is focused on sort of creating that growth. The other parts are focused on sort of operating the business, but the CDO is focused on creating that growth. And then the CIO changes from um, efficiency to transformation. So it's about creating knowledge. It's about creating agility, not about operating IT. And, and whether it's vertically centric or not, I would say all, all verticals are valuable. All verticals have um, an ability to create new innovation and new agility. And it's mostly consumers that are driving that, right? Your transactions are going to occur mostly external to the organization versus internally. So if you have a CIO that's focused on your 300 applications that you're that your 3,000 people use, then you're focusing on the wrong things. Your CIO needs to focus on the five applications that 6 million customers use. That, that's the shift. And do you find that that happens a lot? Is that a difficult shift or? It's a difficult shift for some CIOs, sort of the, 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 the CIOs, they're focused on governments, governance and security. Uh, but the CIOs that have made the leap to innovation are even thinking differently. They, their focus much more is on, on, on four big parts. First one being economic transparency. So it's not about a $150 million budget. It's about re-articulating IT to how the business makes money. If the business sells widgets, it's widgets for five dollars. Then IT needs to be a dollar three per widget, right? Yeah. Uh, they they need to make sure that it's the how you spend money is directly related to how you make money. The first one. The second one is not worrying about red, green, yellow. Somebody on their team would. They need to focus on creating new value. So how am I adding new revenue or creating new margin? Every project. The third one would be diversifying skill sets. You know, so you, most CIOs have a thousand people, and they're focused on managing the 400 applications and the and the uh, 5,000 pieces of infrastructure that they have. And nobody exists in the organization to do anything new. That's that whole bimodal IT, where I need to have a segregation within the team to do the innovation versus just the operations. And then, and then finally, is reputational risk. You know, all CIOs are focused on ensuring that the bad guys don't get in, right? So on the cybersecurity type of, type of information flow. Uh, but now they're much more focused as they sit on the business table in terms of reputational risk. So they they're the ones who who are making sure that they, whatever happens doesn't hit the newspaper, right? That the ATMs aren't down, that the planes land perfectly well, that the baby heart monitors are accurate. Right, they they want to make sure that their that the reputation of the organization is more important than sure. just stopping somebody from from jumping in. Fascinating. I was just uh, I was watching an NBC program the other day, and uh, um, you're talking about bad guys getting in. Apparently, one of the breeding grounds for hackers is uh, Romania, my country. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. why can't they use their brain in different way? So. Um, going back to uh, to what you were saying, um, two years ago, I attended a conference in London uh, with um, all the chief innovation officers in, in big European organizations. And the one big message that came across was that um, the biggest challenge to innovation is not coming up with new ideas. The biggest challenge is to get um, poker players, which are the innovators, to talk to the uh, chess players, which are the decision makers. And I thought that was fascinating because, once again, it talks to what you described earlier. You have that unique perspective of your own point of view or your own uh, view of the world. Do you find that... Um, CIOs align easily with their CEOs? Do you find them to be ahead, to be behind? Are they able to talk the same language? 
I, I, I definitely think it's based on their background and their perspective. I think well-read CIOs are incorporating external uh, trends and information into their strategies. I think CIOs that are sort of command and control don't have that habit, right? They're focused much more on ensuring that the systems are up and they're focusing on their bias of, of technology-centric governance to be important to them. Um, I think where the innovation comes from is from the CEO saying, IT can't be a, uh, an order taker for me. IT, in many ways, needs to become the business. And if it's becoming the business, then IT not only has to have a seat at the table, but they have to be the decision maker. They have to be the enabler of sort of the transformation that I'm looking at. I can't create a new customer experience in retail where I'm holistically looking at the client that could shop from any money, any of my channels at any one period of time if I'm on a, not enabling that via technology. It's very interesting to me because you and I, years ago, we talked about the fact that a lot of um, many parts of the business that are so important to the business success overall, like finance or IT, um, being so functional and relying on their expertise almost uh, don't get a broader sense of the business. And I think what's happening in the world today, it's forcing that, especially in, uh, for people in technology. Let me ask you about a couple of terms, because I, um, I believe that it's important to have the right nomenclature. I also often believe that we get stuck in a term that we all define differently and then that causes many problems like even innovation for example it's such a broad term and so many organizations describe it differently yet not necessarily the same within the organization talk to us a big, about big data and internet of things what do they actually mean sure so big data is a data management problem that cannot be solved by traditional people, processes, and technology. So if you can download a piece of software and run it to solve your problem, you don't have a big data problem. They tend to be articulated in what we refer to as the Vs, right? So you might have a high level of volume where you're looking at uh, uh, exabytes of information, volume that can't even be moved. And if it can't be moved, it's hard to sort of discover value out of it. Or maybe it's a velocity issue, a speed issue, where you're trying to make decisions in nanoseconds. Well, it's hard to hard to find people and process and technology to support those. Or maybe it's a variety issue, where you're used to an information management problem that is sort of report-based. And reports are generally coming out of relational database. So I can query from that database. But if you have audio files and video files and, and machine type of information, then that kind of um, variety of information can't be solved with you know, a, a, uh, a reporting tool, as an example. So if you have the variety of velocity um, uh, or a volume type issue, that they sort of create, in essence, sort of the big data world. And if you add sort of veracity where I don't appreciate or I can't tell where the source of that information's from, then that, that adds another dimension. And your whole goal here is to create interesting value. But the reality is there's nuggets of value in exabytes of information, but the more information you have, the harder it is to find that nugget of value. I IoT is Internet of Things where machines talk to other machines or machines talk to the server. Well, that's, that's in many ways an example of a big data issue where machines talking to machines are going to do it at a hop, much faster pace. Uh, they're going to create much more volume. Like you look at a bullet train, it might produce you know, upwards of 20, 20 terabytes a day. Uh, and it's a whole, it's much more variety of data, right? I'm going to use sensor information from trains or video information from cameras. And I'm going to use all that information together to create new and interesting insight. That's, that's where big data and IoT sort of combines itself. And do you believe, and, and I'm saying this because I definitely don't talk to as many uh, CIOs or CEOs as you do, but do you believe that the CEOs have a um, at least a good grasp of those, um, of the differences, uh, of the interconnectedness, as you described, big data and Internet of Things? Maybe not to that detail, but certainly that they appreciate that data itself is really the foundation of digital transformation. They know it's the it's the voice 
between IT and the CFO and operations and their clients. Data fundamentally becomes the value that they need to create and innovate from. Um, and that's where they're spending a good portion of their time. Yeah. And you know, uh, Paul, that I'm quite uh, opinionated, so I have my <laughs> own way. <laughs> My way, own way of describing this, but um, give us some examples of how does uh, big data or Internet of Things translate at the operational level? So what would a company who understands the dynamics of those elements, what would they do differently as, as, a, um, uh, as a service organization? What would they do differently for their clients? How would it manifest? So I think if you're looking at data differently, then you're going to look at insight as a new piece of value that you're being produced. So you might produce the widget, but you might also provide insight about that widget that um, that would be valuable to the customer itself. So you can say, here is a car, but not only am I going to give you the car, I'm going to tell you and appreciate what the predictive maintenance requirements are for that car. I'm going to constantly evaluate your driving habits. I'm going to constantly use that data to determine whether something's going to fail. And I'm going to ensure to tell you to go to the mechanic to fix this problem before it becomes an actual problem, right? Before it's a $2,000 expense, as an example. And do you find that that happens a lot? What's the um, efficiency of uses this explosion of technology in large organization, mid-size, or even entrepreneurial uh, companies. I'm sure you see it all. I think the potential is massive, but I think there are real handcuffs to existing organizations to to use data as a, as a fundamental uh, digital transformation tool set. Um, and some of those sort of handcuffs are organizational. Some of them are technical, where the data is tied to the applications that created it. And, and some of it, you simply just don't have the expertise, the people, to create those new interesting insights. But I think you could divide your new digital transformation strategy into an actual data strategy, and I can talk about that. Sure. And please go ahead because guess what? I've made the decision to skip the break. Oh, this perfect. is too interesting <laughs> to, to stop. So go ahead. All right. I'll talk about that. So, so what you'll find is data, sorry, digital transformation is foundationally about data because it's, it's the source of, of the richness. And what you have is, is four big programs. You'll have a data management program that says, how do I create de- and manage data independent of the applications that create it? How do I make sure that this data can be used as separately than than the applications that might have actually housed it in the first place? That's the first one. The next one's about governance. How do I how do I manage data and secure it um, as as its own entity? How do I how do I mature it? How do I version it? How do I make sure that it's secured from the external entity, not unlike I do with my equipment themselves? The next one's about data mobility, and this is really the data the the enrichment part where I'll say, how do I abstract data from the source? How do I make it available to new applications or new screens like my laptop or or my phone or my tablet? How do I make it available to completely new machines so machines can talk to each other? And then how do I make this data available for completely new business functions? So I might have created an application in my mortgage system, uh, but now I want to use this application to create new interesting insight or do universal search for compliance or maybe broker out to the cloud. And then the final one is data analytics. How do I create new and interesting business insight out of the data that I have right now? How do I align this new insight and analytics um, across the services that I already provide? So I gave you an example with cars. But maybe uh, this insight's also useful for retail. Maybe this insight's also useful for, for finding new new oil patches, right? I'm doing so, so geometric, geomatic type of uh, uh, analytics exercise. So you're looking at data management with independence, data governance with control, data mobility for access, and, and data analytics for insight. Amazing. You make it sound so simple. <laughs> Does it happen often uh, that organizations manage all those different aspects of data equally well? Or do you see one to be um, kind of more predominant in terms of uh, organizations' businesses focusing on? I, I think what you find is you're, 
you're always the product of your org chart and your uh, your performance management system, right? So if your org chart doesn't have a, we'll call it the VP of data, right? Where you have a VP of application, VP of infrastructure. If you don't have the VP of data that elevates the value of data, where it's just as important as applications, you, you, you might not be as functional. You might not be as innovative. And then if you have a performance management system that focuses on rewarding red, green, yellow projects and not new business value, new revenue, then you, you might not be as successful. But if you do have the VP of data or the BI team and you do and you are measuring that team in terms of creating new business value, then you're going to be incredibly successful. You will, you will focus on all four parts because all four parts are necessary to sort of drive that actual insight or that actual new revenue scheme or that actual new level of business efficiency or that actual new customer experience. And in your experience, and it may be a number, uh, a point of a data point that you may have not uh, had to consider or um, come across, but in your experience and to um, uh, people you have exposure to, to what extent, what percentage, let's say, approximately, of businesses you work with have that are on the ball in the way you describe it, to have a VP of data and to have a, a reward system that encourages uh, long-term thinking, innovation versus the other, the more traditional model? I would say there's there's some industries that might be more innovative than others, and the size of the organization in many ways matters. So, so the more entrepreneurial organizations you have, most people in there that um, are 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 doing every job, right? So you only have five people, so those five people need to be able to do fifteen people's worth of job. But the best part of an entrepreneurial um, organization is that they can start from scratch, right? It's greenfield. They can create their applications where the data is already abstracted. In much larger organizations, in the 100-year organizations with with billions of dollars worth of revenue, um, they have a means to create those organizations, right? So they they have the capability to create a, a VP of data or a chief data officer or a chief digital officer to focus on the, that new world. So they'll create a team, even though there might be much slower to move that boat, they have the, the physical means to make that happen. They can be more innovative in many ways. I'm finding the mid-sized companies are, are much more difficult to change, where mm-hmm. they don't have the... The, the mass amount of people to create that innovation and they're way past the entrepreneurial stage where they might have technology debt where a good portion of their infrastructure and applications aren't supported because they haven't hit that that revenue threshold to actually start reinvesting in themselves. And then when you look at the verticals, you know, the more innovative ones are the ones that have the most pressure, right? So oil and gas are innovating on find, finding new and better places to find oil. Right or gas, because the last thing you want to do is invest millions of dollars and not find anything. Right, so they have to invest all of their money in analytics to find the best place. Uh, if you look at transportation, it's about making uh, making planes and trains and cars faster and better uh, and safer. And therefore, a lot of analytics is going into that kind of world, right? Whereas uh, a government, as an example, they might be focusing on open government, making sure that data is available to their constituents, but less so about operating efficiently. You um, you talked about organizational challenges, and of course, one of my uh, huge purpose of being on the radio and bringing people like you is that by sharing your experience and your point of view, other people can uh, you know incorporate it in their daily decisions about business. So you talked about organizational challenges. What? would be some of those that are, let's say, big um, uh, derailers of innovation, yet easier to solve, or some recommendations that you can make to, um, let's say, large organizations from an organizational uh, perspective that they can eliminate to be better? Uh, so certainly... Um, I'm finding where some of those issues are is at the executive table where they're looking at their competitors as more relevant as other industries, right? So they're yeah. comparing themselves. They're looking at uh, at market share and wallet share within a particular vertical versus looking at other verticals and their ability to innovate and applying it to their world. Sometimes there's this gap, right, between why why the retail makes sense in the travel industry. 
where, where it probably does. You just have to look for that nugget of gold. Uh, there's a little bit of gap in terms of appreciating that data is, in fact, your foundation instead of just a side effect. It's not just the thing that you save, right? It's the thing that actually creates some interesting insight. And then where you have, uh, uh, you're not bringing in new expertise and new understanding, where you're looking at your existing team and saying, my existing team can innovate just as well as they did. But if that were true, you'd be already an innovative organization, right? So sometimes you've got to bring in new process, new people, new understanding, new considerations to help with, with the new ideology. Very interesting. You were talking um, about innovation being, uh, you know, having challenges, different challenges in the small entrepreneurial organizations versus large corporations. It just struck me when you were describing it to ask, do you think or do you know uh, for a fact that uh, one of the reasons that Hitachi is so fragmented, it's actually to um, allow innovation and and being flexible and moving quickly and… It's certainly an excellent point. Like there's there's value in having 950 brands because in many ways we build machines. And those machines or whether the output being a physical product or a piece of software, you know, lives on its own in many ways, but has to innovate it into a larger ecosystem that is the ecosystem of Hitachi. So there's value in thinking about a physical product as a distinct entity and value of thinking of it within an ecosystem. Uh, uh, but there is value in terms of its R&D. So we look at 950 brands, but we have a single organization that does R&D across our brands. So we can say a single organization with 5,000 engineers can say, let me grab encryption from our MRI machines and apply that to storage. Or some interesting compression algorithm from our video surveillance world and apply that to nuclear power plants. Right. So we can cross-innovate based on the innovations we're doing within the innovation in the individual brands across all of our brands by having a centralized R&D. And you know what, in my words, uh, do you know what I call that? I call the uh, 2.0 renaissance model because Mm. I'm fascinated that to this date, you know, renaissance remains as a most prolific and innovative period in humankind. And it's a, you, one cannot um, ignore the fact that an artist was an engineer, was an astronomer, or a doctor, a philosopher. No wonder um, things were created at such a speed. And especially now that we know our brain doesn't differentiate between the different inputs. So it's not going to say, oh, this is coming from uh, um, pharma. And And this is not relevant to manufacturing. On the contrary, the brain will make uh, use of every single piece of information and translate to what's necessary. So it looks like Hitachi operates exactly in this way in its R&D, very um, renaissance-like kind of thinking. Very interesting. And, you know, I always say that I love things that agree with my way of thinking, Paul. So, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's aligned exactly to your perspective. Exactly. So, (laughs) tell me, uh, what do you believe, what do you see the future like? I mean, it's so interesting. It's like we live in the future. So, um, one wonders how much further can it get? But what's your perspective of what's going to happen and how technology, big data, digital, it's all going to evolve. So so I think clearly Rob, uh, robots are taking over the world, right? So there, there will be a point in time where most people are watching TV, right? There'll be a point in time where most uh, task-based activities are handled by robotics. Most task-based electronic implementations like um, having a contact center will be implemented by robotics, right? There will be a software or hardware means to do most of the work to which you don't have to do. And that encourages safety, that encourages uh, that encourages innovation. In fact, that many way encourages the renaissance where I'm focused less on earning money and I'm focused more on inventing things. That, that inventing things might be another robot or it might be art, it might be science, it might be focusing on, on um, ecology, it might be focusing on human endeavor Endeavor and not not task endeavors, not not menial effort, uh, because that'll be handled by by electronics in some way, whether it's hardware or software. But th- that's much further in the future. In, in the in the short term, it's much more about um, evolving the, your particular organization from a seller of widget 
to a technology enabler that includes widgets. Um, it's about changing a customer experience, so it's not about buying something from you. It's about being a part of the family of the organization. You know, participating not only within the organization's family, but my whole family. So, if I'm looking at retail as an example, it's not just buying a checking account. It's about buying holistically all the debits and credits that are in my life within this particular institution, and then my spouse, my children, my grand grandparents are all involved in that institution because they appreciate what my life looks like over time. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm levitating here because one of the things that I know we can't and we have tried through um, artificial intelligence is really to replace the human thinking through robotics. So while we continue to revolutionize our world and turn it upside down and inside out, we are bound by the same biases, by the same um, wiring that has, um, uh, you know, defined our thinking ever since we've evolved as a humankind. And that's why I get so excited because uh, whether I have the, the only answer, I wouldn't pretend that, but I feel that I have one small facet of the answer in how we can we can evolve that as as humans our own thinking it's uh we have probably two minutes to close i told you that uh it's gonna go very quickly and i have about 50 other questions that i ha- i'd like to ask so i'll probably bring you back if you're open to it happy but to do it i would love to this has been fascinating what would you be uh saying to organizations out there um to to help them start seeing things differently because I totally agree with you. Some of the things that uh, uh, you talk about, they almost feel dreamlike. It's like, really, can we uh, do this? Can we get to that point? Then we will. But in many ways, we are bound by our own um, limited, present, focused thinking. What would you advise? What would be your words of wisdom? Uh, I'd break it down into the three most important leaders I've had in my career. So my first most important leader created the the business value in me, where it wasn't about programming. It was creating a new piece of value for the clients to which we were selling. It's about articulating monetarily and transactionally value to a client, not the code. That was the first one. My second leader was about was about politics, right? To say, how can we improve relationships internally and externally so that we can create uh, uh, a new value for the organization by creating a symbiotic sort of world? And then the last one was creating a new relationship with your employees, right? To say, how do we embrace them as a family and embrace them as somebody we want to improve over time versus just people to do work? So... Look at your leadership and organization in creating some sort of business acumen, some political acumen or relationship acumen, and then your leadership of your people needs to be focused on sort of evolving the family so that they are both valued and that they're participating in the success of the organization. Fantastic. I love your your answer and I love the fact that you can be a lot more succinct than I, Paul, because we have 20 seconds, enough time for me to tell that it's been a delight having you on the show. I'm uh, absolutely uh, thrilled by everything you shared and I know that I... I'm going to make use of it with my clients. Have a great week. Uh, I know you're not traveling this week, so enjoy it. And everyone out there, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for being on my show. Bye. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Because There's More. Join Laura Ellis again next Monday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel. Be sure to tune in because there's more.